Welcome to the Benzo Free Podcast, your home for an honest, straightforward, and personal discussion about anti-anxiety drugs, their effects, and how to deal with dependence and withdrawal. Whether you have taken benzodiazepines, Z drugs, or any other tranquilizers, know someone who has, or you just want help dealing with chronic anxiety and insomnia, this is your podcast. I'm your host, D.E. Foster, author of the book, Benzo Free, The World of Anti-Anxiety Drugs and the Reality of Withdrawal. I'm so glad you joined us today. Please stick around and let me bend your ear for a few minutes. It just might feel a little better on the other side. Hello there. This is Dee, and welcome to episode 39 of the Benzo Free Podcast. You know, I'd like to start off with a CNN special from this past Sunday on October 6th. As as many of you know, This is Life with Lisa Ling featured benzos as their topic on Sunday. Now, unfortunately, I, I don't have cable or satellite or whatever, so I had a neighbor tape it for me and I watched it yesterday. Now, I know many of you have your own opinions about how it went, and I'm not about to open up a debate here, but I would like to mention a few things. Many of you might have noticed, first off, that the Ashton Manual was never mentioned. In fact, I think most people who watched it think that if they want to taper, they have to reach out to someone in Australia now. <laughs> the only website that was mentioned was Benzo Buddies, which is one of the best, but it would have been nice to have some other references, too, at the end of the special, such as BIC or WBAT or even Benzo.org.uk for the Ashton Manual. Also, the length of benzo withdrawal was not really discussed, and it is a big factor that would have been nice to have been presented. One of the things that makes withdrawal so difficult is how long it lasts for some of us. But that being said, it was amazing coverage for benzos and those who suffer from benzo dependence and withdrawal. And I am very grateful to the producers and to Lisa Ling for providing such wonderful coverage of what our lives are like, and to help explain that to the world. They did a nice job on that. I have to admit, in fact, that some of the stories really touched me. Um, And I wasn't expecting that. I speak with you all every single day and hear some incredibly distressing stories. So I really didn't expect a news program like this to get me emotional. But when Jonathan, the the young man who later killed himself, was wandering around the kitchen and his mom begging him to tell her what is wrong. And all he could say is that he just wanted it to stop. I just started to cry because that was me. That video took me back to about four years ago in acute withdrawal and it hit me. It, It hit me real hard. You see... I made it. I made it through. Jonathan didn't. And and that's why I'm here today, doing what I do. And that got me thinking, what if someone struggling with benzos watched that program and reached out for information and, and stumbled upon this podcast? Well, thinking of that, I just want to say one thing to that person. Welcome. This is now episode 39. And even though many of you have listened to multiple episodes, even perhaps all of them for a few of you, you're a a true glutton for punishment for sure. But some of you are new to this podcast though, and even new to the Benzo community. And for those people, I just want to say welcome and, and share a few things with you initially, if you don't mind. My, My name is D. I may have said that already. I host this podcast, which we started in February of this year. You see, we launched it after the release of a book I put out on benzos. It was called Benzo Free, The World of Anti-Anxiety Drugs and the Reality of Withdrawal. I was on clonazepam or clonopin for 12 years. I tapered for 16 months, and I'm now five years benzo free. I still have symptoms, but I'm significantly improved and live a relatively normal life again. The Benzo Free Podcast is about one thing above all else. 
It's about you. Whether you are about to start to taper, or you're in the middle of acute withdrawal, or now on your second or third year of protracted, or you're a caregiver at your wit's end trying to take care of someone who has become benzo-dependent, or or even a medical professional who just wants to learn more and who cares about the people and their patients who are going through this. This podcast is for you. So if you're new to benzo-free or even new to the benzo community as a whole, welcome. You are welcome here. I don't care what you've done or how many times you screwed up. I do care how stressed out you are or how mad you are, or how violent you feel. I care that your wife just kicked you out of the house, or that your husband doesn't believe your symptoms are real. Or even worse, that there is no one to even support you through this incredibly difficult time. It may sound trite, but I've been through this. And that does something to you. It creates a connection. We are your friends. And we are here to take care of each other. Please, let me know you stopped by. I would love to hear from you. And again, if you don't believe me, just ask any one of the many people I correspond with every single day. Welcome. Check out our website. Check out other organization websites we have listed in our resources and get connected. You are not in this alone. And before we move on, I do want to add one very brief thank you to all those who submitted tributes to Professor Ashton for our tribute page. They can be viewed at benzofree.org slash tribute, and this has become a permanent page of our website. If you'd still like to add a tribute or any words or even just a thank you to Professor Ashton, we'd love to get them. Submit them on our feedback form or email us at podcast at benzofree.org. Thanks to everyone for caring enough about this amazing woman to let her family know how much she meant to you and what she has done for each and every one of us. Today we have an altered format due to the interview. We will still have our introduction, mailbag, feature, and moment of peace, but we will skip the Benzo Stories section because we will be hearing Holly's personal story today in part one of her interview. Our Benzo story will be back in our next episode. I do want to mention that I have received a few stories recently, and I am very grateful for those submissions. If you haven't heard a story you submitted, don't worry. It will be coming up in the following month or two. And I'd still love to receive more, so please don't stop sending them in. Our feature today is an interview with filmmaker Holly Hardman. Her film, As Prescribed, documents the benzo issue through personal accounts and investigation into the mounting evidence. This is part one of the two-part interview, which means today's release is a doubleheader. As we've done before, we're releasing both parts of the two-part interview on the same day. This is so you don't have to wait for the whole interview if you don't want to. This also means that there will be no new episode of the podcast next week but we will be back the following week with brand new stuff to talk about. Holly is a wonderful guest, and I'm sure you're going to want to stick around for the interview. And we still need feedback, as always. Questions, comments, stories, suggestions, corrections, additions, and most of all, one that has plagued humankind for, well, decades at least, is cereal soup. If not, what is it? This is your podcast, and the more content I can share from you, the more Benzo Free becomes a community it was designed to be. So please, tell us what you think. Visit our feedback form at benzofree.org slash feedback, or email us at podcast at benzofree.org, or comment directly on the podcast blog post itself for others to see. And don't forget to sign up for our mailing list at benzofree.org slash subscribe. And one last thing, of course. The Benzo Free Podcast is for informational purposes only and should never be considered medical advice. If you're listening to this podcast on one of our providers, please leave feedback on that carrier. This does help new listeners find us. And that's it. Let's move on to our mailbag. 
Today we have two comments and one question in the mailbag. This one is from our friend. As many of you know by now, when I say our friend, and I did air quotes there in case you didn't see me, it just means that the person prefers to remain anonymous. Anyway, our friend, still air quotes, wanted to add a couple of items to our list of coping skills from A to Z. You know, the ones we covered in episodes 37 and 38 of the podcast. The first one he submitted to us was S is for sunshine and serotonin. Sit in the sun and you will feel better, 100% guaranteed. I I love it, especially when you've been working in the basement as I usually do and perhaps get a bit chilled, and then you walk out in the warm sun and you can feel your bones and muscles warm up just slowly as it permeates your skin and, and makes you feel good all over. Getting outside, getting out into the sun, experiencing nature in all its wonderment, these are good things and things we really need during benzo withdrawal. And the next one our friend submitted, a personal favorite of mine, although I might be just a tad bit biased, was B is for benzo-free, listening to the podcast each week. Thanks for that one. It really made my day. Our next comment is from Wendy in British Columbia, Canada. Wendy writes, I sure do like your voice on the podcast. It's light despite the subject, kind and friendly. Thanks. Something a bit far out that I'm finding useful when I feel tension in my stomach. I fairly lightly but snugly wrap a long ace bandage around my middle covering the area between my belt and bra. This gives me a feeling of support and security there, so that I don't have to hold it tense. I recall as a pretty young kid that I held my gut tight, and I wonder if this is related to many food sensitivities. I'm guessing that the GABA receptors in the gut might benefit from the safe sensation that this wrapping gives me. I just put it on when I'm noticing tension there and don't use it other times. Sometimes I wake up with a feeling of agitation in my gut, and this is helpful for that. Feels kind of like a hug in a meaningful place. My very best to you and your helpful work, Wendy. Well, thank you, Wendy. And, And that is a wonderful suggestion. And thus, like most suggestions... I thought I'd look it up and do a little research, as you all know, something I enjoy doing. First of all, the idea of light pressure or weight is quite common. Weighted anxiety blankets are a perfect example of this, and they have become quite popular. Also, if anyone has a dog who has anxiety from thunderstorms, yes, like Bear, (laughs) you may have bought a thunder shirt for her or him. The constant but light pressure around the middle helps to calm them. Hmm. So, does this work in humans? Wendy sure seems to think so. When I searched for this technique, the vast majority of hits were canine-related. But doesn't it make sense that it should work in humans, too? Finally, after changing a few search parameters, I came across a few related articles. One of the things I came across was a website for a product called T-Jacket. It's a vest for children and adults which provides deep-touch pressure basically stimulating the feeling of a hug using laterally applied air pressure. The website claims that the jacket calms, comforts, and soothes the nerves of anyone who is stressed or anxious. Well, that sounds pretty good. So if that works as the website claims, then why not an ACE bandage? So back to research. I also came across a site that even talked about a technique in Japan called adult swaddling where a person is wrapped up in a blanket or piece of fabric with your head tucked in, almost like you've returned to the womb. I'm not sure about that one, but I'm not one to judge. Maybe it works. If anyone has information on this technique for adults with anxiety, please let me know, and I'll be sure to share it on a future podcast. Thanks, Wendy, for the suggestion. You may be onto something there. And the last question we have is from Jean, or maybe Jeannie. Since I usually correspond with each of you on email, I don't always know how to pronounce your names. I'm going to stick with Jean. I hope that's right. 
Jean says, While listening to last week's podcast, I heard you mention something about not flying. I have serious flying fears and I have to fly tomorrow. I have to be in a plane for six and a half hours and back again in two weeks. I'm trying to make it as easy as possible on myself by staying in a motel near the airport the night before my 6.15 a.m. flight, by having pre-check at TSA, and by resigning myself to not getting involved in the juggle for space in the sardine can. I will be fine white-knuckled. Oh, the the poor soul sitting next to me should I end up having a full-blown panic attack. It's happened more than once. Have have you done any podcasting about fear of flying specifically, Gene? Thanks, Gene. This one I struggle with, and I know many of you do too. I think one of the biggest myths about the fear of flying is that it's all based on the fear of crashing. That's only one aspect, and often with benzo brain injury, not the biggest one sometimes. For many of us, especially those I have spoken to through Benzo Free, We have an intense fear of being trapped. Once they close those doors, our options are limited. What if we freak out? What if we're trapped on the tarmac for two hours? What if they keep the seatbelt sign on the whole flight and I can't even use the bathroom? What if that crying baby or the man on the cell phone or the woman on her laptop or the couple arguing two rows in front, the teen behind kicking my chair, or the kid with the music playing on with no headphones? What if any or all of that just won't stop and I can't handle it? And, and it can start long before we even reach the plane. TSA, lines, crowds of people everywhere, all in a hurry and stressed and on and on and on. It's the what-ifs that so often make flying so very hard. The fear of flying comes from a variety of sources, and it's a far more complex topic than we can cover in our mailbag today. So let's not. Let's carve it out for a time in a future podcast, perhaps even with traveling in general. I like it. Coming up soon. And that closes our mailbag. Thanks to everyone who sent in comments and questions, and please keep them coming. And now, on to our feature. Today, our feature topic is a conversation with filmmaker Holly Hardman. On Monday, I had the pleasure of speaking with Holly Hardman, director and producer of the upcoming documentary film, As Prescribed, which is all about the benzo crisis. Let let me tell you a bit about her. Hallie Hardman entered the field as a researcher and, and worked for Rolling Stone, PBS, and 20th Century Fox in the late 1980s. In the early 1990s, Hardman began writing, directing, and producing short films. Her shorts were regulars on the decade's underground film circuit and were distributed by New Day, InSound, and MWF Video. Her first narrative feature, Besotted, was released theatrically by Artistic License Films. Hartman directed and produced her first documentary feature, Good People Go to Hell, Save People Go to Heaven, after the Gulf Coast Hurricanes of 2005. Her current project, As Prescribed, began production in 2014 after her personal encounter with the perils of a prescribed benzodiazepine. Hardman lives in western Massachusetts, where she is raising her 16-year-old daughter. I invite you to join part one of this interview, and I really hope you enjoy it. Well, hello, Holly, and welcome to the Benzo Free Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay, and I'm very happy to be here. Thank you so much for asking me to do the podcast. Well, it's you. my pleasure. It's great. It's great to have you on the show. You know, one of the things I usually do with our, our guests that come on the podcast is I always like to ask your benzo story. Um, do you mind just kind of telling me your experience with benzos? What medications? How long? You know, how did you withdraw and, and how you're doing? Okay, well, my benzodiazepine was clonopin. Mm-hmm. Um, I was speaking with somebody recently and going back in time and saying, you know, actually the first time I was introduced to a benzodiazepine was in college. So the college physician um, who worked in the health center 
gave me a little envelope um, with probably 10 to 20 Dalmain okay. in, in the envelope. And I never finished them, but I would, I took, I know I took them probably a half a dozen. I took one probably a half a dozen times. I think I took them um, sometimes when I just thought, oh, I need to have a decent night's sleep. Mm-hmm. And then didn't think much about it um, after that. Just, okay. As I, I was saying, you know, I knew at that time it's not good to take pills. Um, and I knew my mother would kill me. <laughs> if... Did it help you at that time when you took them? Sure, I was able to sleep. But you know what I remember that was funny about taking it where I said, I, I know this isn't good for me because it, I just had like a funny taste in my mouth the next day, oh, which kind of helped me say, you know, this may be giving me some pseudo sleep, but um, it's doing something else. Mm-hmm. So I let that go. And so years pass and, um, you know, Delman was very popular like in the 80s. Yeah. And, um, again, a period of time of sleepless nights and my gynecologist, I was living in Los Angeles at the time and my gynecologist gave me Dalmain to sleep again, didn't take it every night. I, I don't remember how often I took it, mm-hmm. but I remember I used to have a prescription for Dalmain, didn't think much of it. But I, when I moved to New York and I was still in touch with the same gynecologist I was going back and forth between New York and L.A. quite a bit. So I still had a lot of my L.A. life going and hadn't been able to find a good gynecologist in (laughs) New York yet. Actually, I really liked this guy. seen him on the Kardashians, my daughter. (laughs) Yeah, he was wonderful. And he actually, at one point, he might have contacted me or I was contacting his office for some reason. But he got on the phone and he said, you know, Holly, I'm concerned about Dalmain. I'm reading that it's it's tough stuff and I don't want any of my patients on it. So oh. I said, okay. So I stopped, you know, but yeah. I wasn't taking it, <clears throat> wasn't taking it enough to have, I, you know, you know, actually I take that back. You never want to say I wasn't taking it enough. Um, I was maybe fortunate if I had any kind of reaction to stopping. Um, I didn't notice it. Okay. Right. And then there was one other experience I had um, before I was prescribed clonopin. Also in New York and um, sort of having problems with more like work anxiety because I was going up for auditions at the time and I just said something to the primary care physician I was seeing at the time about, ah, when I go for these auditions, I just, you know, sometimes I have panic attacks and this, the primary care physician I was seeing, he had a lot of, um, you know, entertainment people, theater people, film people, and that he, that okay. were his patients. And he said, well, I just tell my patients to take Xanax. And I prescribe most of these people Xanax or a beta blocker. He said, the ones who are doing eight performances on Broadway, every week I, I they take beta blockers he said, but uh, for other people like you you don't want to take any this every day you know you just take it when you have something that makes you particularly nervous right so he prescribed me Xanax and I took it I think I took it for about a week and I hated it I hated it and then I thought it was me yeah um, and I don't even know if it was helping with anxiety at all if it was, it was so quick that it was strange. It was such a strange feeling. And then I think I might have said, okay, it's just me. I'll try it again. Maybe a couple months later, I still had some left. I said, I'll try it again. And I just realized, whatever this is, it's not agreeing with me. I'm just not a Xanax person. I didn't know what a benzodiazepine was, right? I knew about Valium, and I knew that was a drug I would never want to take. They had told me that these were related to Valium. I would have said no way. I remember the Karen Ann Quinlan mm-hmm. story, and I was just very like, don't touch Valium. Um, so then what happens is, how oh, probably about a year or two after that, I had this flu, and um, I'm one of those people where it just doesn't get better. And it started affecting me cognitively. And I wasn't taking anything. So this was like a pure, yes, I ended up with 
chronic fatigue syndrome, ME, and um, CFSME. You know, but I lived with that. You know, it took a, quite a while to get to the point where I found a practitioner who was truly helpful. But um, that same practitioner <laughs> was the one who prescribed me clonopin. Oh, no. So in her very good practice, in some ways, it was a very terrible practice mm-hmm. because she put all of her chronic fatigue syndrome patients on clonopin during the day and then Ambien to sleep. for those oh, of us gosh. who had sleep problems because I had insomnia yeah. of course I had insomnia I did not have my circadian rhythm was totally off you know I wasn't living a life that would would you know support that was not supporting um a really healthy mm-hmm. existence it wasn't not healthy but I mean I was just eating junk food to me a slice of pizza with spinach on it was a very well-rounded meal. That's health food, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I was eating hot dogs from the corner hot dog oh, stand. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, of course, I was just, I was... Yeah, but in the city, those are, those are so good, though. <laughs> I know. I haven't eaten one since that. That was years ago. I, will, I wouldn't touch Yeah, I, I haven't since I, <laughs> since I stopped um, working downtown. But when you work downtown, a hot dog <laughs> vendor is just hard to... I resist, yes, funny how delicious they are oh they are Um, (laughs) yeah so um but i ended up you know it was not good for my health and so um i yeah so she prescribed clonopin and i asked at the time that was the one time where i said i don't know anything about this and i there was something i because i read the insert the insert did not have as much information as it does now. Okay. Um, but it had enough where I just said, is this safe? And she said, yes, yes. And she, she said, ignore that stuff. They just do it for legal reasons. Oh, great. Isn't and that then, nice? <laughs> and it wasn't even as scary as what's there now, but it was enough still where I thought, wait a minute, i got to ask what this even is. And then, of course, asked about the Ambien too. And... Um, that was just, you know, something she said, well, you might not want to take this forever, but, you know, just get your sleep on track. She said, but the thing about the clonopin is it's a very safe drug. Yes, it's related to Valium, but it's as though they took everything that was bad about Valium and got rid of it. And now you have this very elegant drug. Oh, my God. So that people can, you know, it's safe. You can take it for the rest of your life. People and it's actually it more the opposite. <laughs> they they oh, made it worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me about it. Oh, no. So um, I followed her instructions. And, um, you know, I did recover from the chronic fatigue syndrome. Good. But not surprisingly, what happened is, and I was very funny about taking the clonopin. and I didn't take it every day. Once I felt better from... I just didn't need it as much anyway. Sometimes I look back and think, maybe I would have been able to just stop it. You know, you'd go to, an, I'd go to another doctor about something else, and they'd, I'd always tell them that I took clonazepam. And they'd say, oh, do you, want a, do you want a prescription? Oh, sure, sure, why not? You know, it's harmless. Right. And helps me. You know, t- my gynecologist that I was then seeing, they, you know, these things are, they just take the New York edge off. I said, yeah, that's right. They, they do, do do that, yeah. Yes, they do. At least for a little while. Yeah, and then they backfire. That yeah. And so, you know, years passed, and honestly, I can look back now and realize I was intolerant for years. I know. Um, Me too. And I, I, yeah, but I still thought it was, I never would have dreamt it was the clonopin, never. Oh, yeah, I can tell you things like I was diagnosed with having, um, metals toxicity lead and mercury you know um that was a famous doctor told me to stop taking clonopin he said you know this is not good stuff yeah pulled out one of his nutraceuticals he said you take this instead okay so what did i do i followed his instructions oh no i was very sick at the time so i stopped the clonopin and took his nutraceutical well you know that did not go well so I was like, I feel worse. I said, he's just trying to sell me this stuff. You know, this is about, you know, instead of giving money to to Roche Labs for Clonopin, I give it to him for his nutraceutical formulation or the company he's working with. So I said, you know, the, I'll I'll go with the 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 um the tried and true Clonopin. I'll stick with the tried and true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he was not helpful, and um, about. Maybe a couple of years, 
after I saw him, I was still suffering, but also living a very healthy life in the sense I would cycle seven to 10 miles a day, go on biking trips with my daughter, you know, travel wherever I felt like traveling, you know, um, able to maintain good relationships. Um, you know, life was good. And, and the Klonopin still seemed to be working when I took it, which maybe was, I started taking it more for sleep because I had stopped taking the Ambien and okay. I didn't even notice anything when I stopped taking the Ambien. Um, so I would take it sometimes to sleep. And then I had developed these terrible driving problems. Hmm. Um, like what? Panic, rolling panic oh, attacks. Okay. driving. And just thinking, you know, this is, I think, what so many of us do. I just thought, that's me. I guess this is aging. You know, or my life is more stressful than I even realize. Wow, if I'm having all these panic attacks, I just you have to look at my life, you know, yeah. and um, I didn't look at the clonopin. But what I did determine at one point was just being the mother to my daughter. I didn't want to be taking a pill to mm-hmm. sleep for anything. I just said, you know, I almost started to feel because I wasn't doing anything stressful. Um during like there was this week or two period it was, it was just kind of a calm period at home and I was thinking I feel like this is sort of making me feel like I'm a little drugged mm-hmm. so this I am going to stop taking this so that was that and it was May and it was toward Memorial Day weekend and so over Memorial Day weekend by the Monday I thought I was going to die, you know, and I was about to call 911 or drive myself to the hospital. Right. And instead, I just Googled stopping clonopin. And I immediately found so much information. I yeah. looked and I said, this is what I've been doing to myself. So I ran into my bathroom, opened the clonopin bottle and took one. So I stabilized. Yeah. But from that day forward, I, that evening, um, I emailed my prescriber who was my gynecologist and I said I am not going to take this anymore but I can't just stop because I had then spent the day um but you know I'm one of those people once I see I could do something I'm pretty much like okay I'm okay because I'm going to do the right thing and I found the Ashton manual that afternoon you know just probably within an hour of googling and um got a copy of that you know I did got the um whatever was available on the benzo.uk site. Oh yeah. And um, shared that with my prescriber and sent a compelling email along with it. And basically just saying, this is what I am doing. And I would prefer to have your help because somebody's going to need to prescribe. Mm-hmm. And um, I had really liked this doctor. So I wasn't, I wasn't blaming her. She wasn't the original prescriber anyway. And I had realized like, Oh, a lot of doctors don't know what this does. And at least she's a really good doctor and she'll probably listen to me. And she did. Then she actually ended up leaving her practice because she had what I was told were other serious health issues. She actually had me go to her partner for a while, who was the one doctor who almost killed me while I was, um, trying to do a safe taper. She once would refuse to prescribe the clonazepam when I really needed it because I was doing a safe taper and I didn't, you know what it's like. You can't not do the taper. You can't just say, I'll take a break from my taper and not take the pill. You have to do it. And it was the one time I was treated like a drug addict. Um, and they actually, because I think that the doctor was a, didn't want me as the patient because she kept trying to push because I wouldn't do what she wanted. She wanted me to take Lexapro. Okay. While I was taping, she says, you're going to need this. And I said, I said, I'm not depressed. That's not my problem. Um, and she said, well, you're going to be. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's accurate, but it's not, not a great thing to be telling you. <laughs> I said, I don't think that's a good reason. So no. they did find me a good primary care physician in New York. Um, who did not prescribe benzodiazepines. Um, And I said, that's great as long as she will prescribe to me while I'm tapering. So we worked something out. She was wonderful. I did it. Never had a problem with her office. They were totally open to listening because what this doctor said to me was, I am learning. 
I am I have seen from another patient who ended up in the emergency room that something's going on that I didn't learn in medical school. You know, I would rather have that kind of doctor than yeah. almost any. Just the ones who are willing to admit I don't know enough here, yeah. but let's figure this out together. That can be the best doctor in the world sometimes. Absolutely, absolutely. So I ended up having a very good experience with her. Oh, good. And um, and so there you go. And um, uh, the one time after when I had some, after I, about a year or two after I completed my taper, she suggested I take gabapentin. I was having some yep. terrible back problem. And I just, she looked at me, she said, I know you're not going to like to hear this. And I said, you're right. I'm not <laughs> taking gabapentin. <laughs> you're right. <laughs> and um, yeah, so with her help, I made it off. Oh, well, that's great. You, you, you had mentioned at your, on your website that you, you had said, quote, um, sure, I'd like to be at 100%, but I'm not certain that is possible. And now I believe that it does not need to be possible. Could you elaborate on that and what you meant by that? Okay. I can say for me personally, it's because I do continue to have health issues. Mm -hmm. I believe I was one of those people who had such profound HPA axis dysfunction that I don't know that I'll ever be all the way. Can you explain that, okay. what you mean by that? Yeah, okay. Um, I just think on that level of my, you know, endocrine system, my, mm -hmm. you know, just my central nervous system, I am compromised. Um, I, I had a terrible concussion. I had a, ended up with serious post-concussion syndrome, and the neurologist said, you know, you have vulnerability okay. from the, the history of the benzodiazepine. And um, now I have Graves' disease, oh. which is and it was another setback. Yeah. Um, you know, Graves is probably a virus that my one of my physicians thinks goes back to the mononucleosis more than the benzodiazepine. Okay. Could be. You know, there are these latent viruses mm -hmm. some of us have. So I think that whole, you know, my original health profile had this um, this this vulnerability in it. So I don't know, you know that I'm ever going to be who I was or who I was meant right. to be. I shouldn't say who I was meant to be because now I'm I am who I was meant to be, and I I believe that that was a shift. That was a paradigm shift. That's why I include into that quote of yours because I I had the same realization. I think we've even chatted about this a little bit on the phone before, yeah. but just how you know so many people ask me on the podcast when will I be normal? When will I be my old self? And I'm having trouble telling them. You may never be your old self, but that doesn't have to be a bad thing. You can, I, I'm a better person than I was. I came out of this better. Yes, I agree wholeheartedly. Oh, good. You know, I, I think you and I, you know, I think a little older, older than you are, but, you know, a lot, I feel for the younger people going through this where when they don't even get a chance to know who they are, right? what they were meant to be. And I, so I would say to those young people, just take what you know about yourself that was true. Going back to childhood, there's something about everything we had as children. Mm -hmm. We kind of knew who we were and what we were about and just embrace that. And, yeah. and, and you will get that back in a, a more mature, um, in a, in some ways in a better fashion, like yeah. on a, on a really, I don't say deep level, on a deeper level, level of acceptance, it's such a profound uh, change and such a good change that people should not fear it. Yeah, it's a it's a good thing that comes out of this. It is, and 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 neither one of us will ever you know want to go through it again, <laughs> you know, and never yeah. suggesting that. But to realize that on the other side there is this rainbow, there is this amazing new life, and you have a new outlook on life, and you see things differently, and it. I don't know. I'm grateful for that. I would agree. I feel a great sense of gratitude oh, as well. Yeah. Yes, I do. Radical acceptance. And then what's nice when you can get through the radical part of it, uh -huh. which is what I do <laughs> to finish my taper, um, once you sort of get back to some sort of normalcy, just acceptance. Yeah. Just ex such a beautiful thing, which I, I didn't have before. I was a rage against the machine kind of. I think person. most of us were. I think that comes with youth too, I think, somewhat. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's what I see with so many young people going yeah. through this. 
it's it's it is I think it's harder for many of them. And then the, when I think I'm, I was sort of in a lucky place, um, I had a, enough financial security. I just think of all yeah. the older people. You who and I both. Yeah. Worked for everything, and then they have to lose it, and all the people who become, you know, just um. So so many homeless. Oh, I, I it breaks my heart. And I, I, I had the blessings of a wife who has a steady job and it's enough that oh, we can get yeah. by. It's not right. not tons, but it's enough to get by. And that is a huge asset I had during this time that so many people don't. Yes. And and it breaks my heart the ones I chat with and, and are, are you know, or some are like you said, I've talked with some who are homeless and some who don't know where they're, you know, where they're going to stay tomorrow night, or, or where the, whether they can afford to go to the doctor again. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I don't know, don't know what to tell them, but we try. We need change. We need change. We oh. do. We do. And that's the thing is, like you were talking about, um, you know, we're talking about acceptance and talking about moving on, and and it's not like we don't have limitations. You know, you and I, I'm sure, mm-hmm. you, you've been benzo free for how long now? Is it five years? Yeah, we're right about the same. I'm just over five. Yeah. Yeah, I hit I hit five in in August, so yeah, it's been. Yeah, I was I was April. Okay, gotcha. I wrote a I did actually write a blog post about that. Yeah, I remember reading that one. Come to think of it, that was your, it was your five year, and that was the one I I think I just did some research on that for this interview. Oh, good, good, good. Yeah, that was a good blog post to give updates on the film and everything, which which is a great transition. Um, I was wondering about moving in and talking a little bit about the the film as prescribed, if that'd be okay. I'd love to. Okay. Yeah. I, I know you have certain things that you may be able to talk about and some things you may not since it's still in, in post-production and actually production on, on a few things. But mm-hmm. let me just ask you um, very quickly a little bit about the film and a little bit about when did you get the idea to turn what you're learning into a film and um, what made you decide that a film was the right venue for you to tell this story? Well, it was uh, the timing was interesting that may weekend that i told you about was also when i was just completing my documentary um good people go to hell save people go to heaven okay and we were starting to communicate with film festivals about where we were going to premiere it and in june i kind of knew it was probably going to be idfa in november and you know in june i had started my taper Okay. And I thought, oh, okay. Gee, if we get IDFA, then and, and explain IDFA to people. Oh, it's the um, it's the largest documentary film festival okay. in the world. It is held in the Netherlands in Amsterdam annually. It is an amazing uh, festival, and I was incredibly fortunate to be invited. To oh, that's great. That's that great. Festival. Yeah. So, um, when we had the I, you know, it seemed as though we were, were going to be invited. I started thinking, okay, well, okay, it's in November. I'll be off Klonopin by the time I get there. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be back to my old self again. You know, I know. It's, 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 it's sad that we laugh at that, but it's hard not to huh. laugh at it. Yeah, yeah. So, of course, I was in full-on withdrawal mode mm-hmm. in November, and I, and I went. It was very difficult to do if I hadn't met a group of there there was a group of filmmakers in particular these guys I hooked up with who just oh made it and they didn't know what was going on with me but they just they were like these really non-judgmental um every we were all there with our films just so you know excited on one level on one level I'm me and I'm thinking this is the experience of a lifetime I'm loving every minute of it and then there's the other part of me that's just like I can't function I can't function and um I had some gaffes. I know when, when the, for the first screening of good people, I was invited up on stage and, um, you know, that sort of thing is still terribly difficult for me. So imagine okay. during the fall. Oh, um, I know. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't, you know, I just, I did, I really didn't do a nice job. I just kind of thanked people. I didn't thank anybody properly. I was just like, I can't believe I'm up here. I can't do this kind of thing. And of course that, did not reflect well on the film, you know, just, just, oh, it's just it's all that stuff. Yeah. I'm, I'm not good at it anyway. So never mind, you know, being, going through withdrawal, but we, we did it. The audiences were great. Um, some of the Q and A's um, I was very comfortable in, you know, you just never know. Sometimes you are kind of like yourself and other times you're not. And then there was, a, yeah. <laughs> there was um, 
a woman who was a Dutch woman who was helping the film with promotion, a little bit of PR, and she was incredible too. So I spent a lot of time. Um, sometimes, like she knew something was wrong with me. I know she did, um, because I remember just sitting with her, having like some tea or something, and I just couldn't look up. You know how okay. how bad it can be, where you're oh, just yeah. like, I can't be here. I can't be here right now. I have to escape, but I can't escape that whole, like you're getting, you have so many symptoms at the same time and you're having these horrible inner tremors and, and just, oh, you, just you just nailed it though. The, the feeling of not being able to escape is, is oh, huge for so many huge. of us, for me too. Yeah. I, I hate that feeling or, or committing to something and thinking I can't oh. get out of it later or I, right. I that drives me nuts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's not so difficult now, but then it was it was just anything. Oh, yeah. anything. And so, but I remember thinking, she's so kind. She's just, she. I'm sure she knows I'm going through something, and she's just being so kind. Oh. And I've stayed in touch with her. And um, and then the guys, their little group, we called it the 4.30 a.m. Directors Club. I'm in <laughs> touch with all of them still, too, and with other people from it. It would be great if, as prescribed, can screen it for this. Oh yeah. You know, when we finish, uh, we'll see. Uh, one of the programmers has expressed interest. So, but you never know. You just never know. It's different leadership now. So different personnel. So. I understand this quite well. <laughs> yes, you do. Yes, you do. Yeah. yeah. Film festivals are a unique business and, and, but they're so much fun and they can, when yeah. you, when you get involved and you get pulled into them and the group of people. Yeah. I, I, I had a wonderful time when I was working with them and. Yeah. And you, you know, that's the thing I, one of the things I love about it's like exclusively mm-hmm. the documentary forum. So you're just, your colleagues are everywhere. You're just in a sea of you, you know, it's like your, your, your tribe, you know, yeah and they get you. And, um, so it was still one of the best experiences of my life. Oh, I'm so glad. That. Yeah. And another thing they did that was just a little side thing was just they um, hosted an American Thanksgiving dinner. It was I oh, had really? to celebrate Thanksgiving there. My daughter flew out to be with my sister and her family in the San Francisco area while I was in Amsterdam. So that was kind of tough, not yeah. being together for Thanksgiving. But they did put on this fabulous thanksgiving dinner you know just things like that mm-hmm. when you're traveling and they are so they bend over backwards to make people from other countries feel at home um yeah. it means a lot it means a lot and that closes out part one of our interview with holly hardman please check out episode 40 for part two it's our next episode where we will spend a lot more time speaking about her film as prescribed and the struggles she experienced getting it made and what she learned in the process. Thanks, Holly. I really appreciate you joining us today on the Benzo Free Podcast. And before we move on to our moment of peace, please allow just 30 seconds for our disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice in any way. The host of this podcast is not a medical professional, nor is he engaged in rendering medical health or psychological advice nor any other kind of personal professional services. The views and opinions expressed by our listeners and interview guests on this podcast, whether read from textual submissions or presented in their own voice, do not necessarily reflect those of the Benzofree podcast or of its host. Withdrawal tapering or any other change in dosage of benzodiazepines, non-benzodiazepines, or any other prescription drugs should only be done under the direct supervision of a licensed physician. Our full disclaimer can be viewed on our website at benzofree.org slash disclaimer. And that brings us to our closing, our moment of peace. It's just one minute, and it's an opportunity to quiet your mind a bit before we return to the chaos of the real world. The way this works is that I will give a brief introduction, perhaps a suggestion of something to focus on. Then I will play a soft bell which will indicate the start of the one minute. This will be followed by another soft bell which will indicate the end of the one minute. And that will be the end of the episode. Feel free to continue to meditate if you choose. If not, Continue on with your day. Please remember that you should only do this if you are in a safe place, where you can close your eyes, relax, and let the world pass by you without you for just one minute. Today we will return to our healing meditation. Our mantra today is, My body is healing. That's all Benzo withdrawal really is.
You can even add a visualization to this exercise if you like, just imagining your body healing. Slow as it may, but healing and repairing itself. Returning your muscles, your nerves, your synapses, all of those parts of your body back to normal. These drugs are gone, or at least being diminished. All that's left for your body to do is heal. And the best thing your mind can do is let it do that. So let's get started. Close your eyes and relax. Take a deep breath in. Hold it for a second. And let it out slowly. Let's do that again. Take a deep breath in. Hold it for a second. And let it out slowly along with all the stress of the day. One more time. Take a deep breath in. Hold it for a second. Then let the breath out slowly, relaxing your entire body. Now just breathe slowly and naturally and say your mantra to yourself. My body is healing. If your mind wanders, just gently bring it back to your mantra. No judgment whatsoever. Continue to do this for one minute. Our next episode is episode 40, and it was released today with this one. Thank you again for joining me today, and please let me know how we did it. Keep calm, taper slowly, and take care of yourself. I'll see you next time.